Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, I first heard that song at some stage last year, and at that point in time, I knew that that was what I wanted for our Easter series uh, this year. The song, I think, is theologically rich, it is reflective, and it traces that big picture storyline uh, throughout the Bible in a way that very few songs do. When I first heard it, uh, I knew that that was what I wanted for Easter and it didn't take anything to convince Pastor Glenn. I think he likes the song as much as I do. So here we are with uh, four messages based around the four verses of that particular song. There we encounter are four men, one man per verse, who point us to who Jesus is and what he would do. They are types or shadows of the Christ who was to come. This morning's message uh, is based around just the first verse of that particular song and I want to begin with an experiment because scientists like experiments and I'm a scientist or at least I was at one stage a scientist and so experiments were part of my everyday life. And uh, all of you are gonna participate in this little experiment. So when I say go, what I want you to do is to recite the alphabet in your head. We're not, we're not gonna do it out loud because we're not at kinder, but we're gonna recite the alphabet in your head. Are you ready? Go. Now, all scientists know that sometimes experiments give you the results that you were expecting, and sometimes they don't. So we, we move on now from the experimental part to the data analysis part of this experiment. So I'm going to take a bit of a straw poll. And what I want to know is how many of you recited the alphabet like this? A, B, C, D, E. And how many of you went A, B, C, D, E, F, G, like that? So if you were in the A, B, C, D, put your hands up, a few. And how many were in the A, B, C, D, E, F, G? A few as well. All right. Well, it was probably 50-50, I reckon. Um, so you're not really proving what I wanted to prove, but <laughs> you know, it is a well-known fact that what is learned in song is remembered long. So it probably marks you out as being under the age of 50 if you did the A, B, C, D, E, F, G, because most of us learned the alphabet in that particular way, not just by rote. It has also been said that songs are sermons that people can remember, and I would agree with that. I'm pretty well aware that most of you probably won't remember anything that I have said uh, within a few days' time. Uh, so what I'm hoping is that by the end of our series for this Easter, that all of you have learned the song. Because if you learn the song, you will have the summary of today's message embedded in your head. You will have the summary of next week's Palm Sunday message embedded in your head. You will have 
the Good Friday message and the Easter Sunday message. All of them will be there ready for you to recall. And neuroscience tells us that what is remembered in song is far easier for the brain to pick up and recall than anything that is remembered in some other way. Our message today, as I've said, covers the first verse of that song. And it could be titled A Tale of Two Gardens, or maybe more accurately, A Tale of Two Men in Two Gardens. Now, uh, Alwyn, or no, Lorna, read us the, the first story of the first man in the first garden, and uh, I'm going to read you now the story of that second man in the second garden. So if you would like to turn with me, uh, we're looking in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26. We're going to read verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The two men in two very different gardens. The first man in a paradise called Eden, that place that God looked upon and said that it was very good. The second in an olive grove called Gethsemane, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Two men who had both entered the world in miraculous ways. The first man was created from the dust of the earth and the second came from heaven to be born of a virgin girl. Curiously, the first man would be created by the second even though the second would be born thousands of years after him. These two men shared some unique distinctions. They were the only two men to have been born without a human father. 
and they were the only two men to have been born without sin. Two men who made decisions in their respective gardens, decisions that would change the course of history. One man, Adam, would succumb to temptation there in Eden and he would bring death and suffering and condemnation upon humanity. The other man would submit to the Father's will in his garden and he would accept the cup that he did not deserve. And in doing so, that one man, Jesus, would restore righteousness and life eternal. The Apostle Paul refers to him as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And in that title, we see that whole redemptive storyline of God's people played out across the pages of our Bibles. First man, Adam, would receive life from God and he would become a living soul or a living being. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, he would be a giver of life, spiritual life. Now, most of you, I'm sure, are very well acquainted with the story of the first Adam. But for any who might not be, here is a very quick recap. God creates the earth and everything in it. On the sixth day of his creative efforts, he decides to make human beings and he makes them in his own likeness. He blesses them and he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. He delegates authority to them over all the living things on earth. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over all the earth and all the creatures that move on the ground. The only restriction that God placed on them was that they could not eat the fruit of the tree in the centre of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if they ate from it, they would surely die. Well, I'm sure most of you know what happened. The first Adam's sinless state didn't last very long. It wasn't long before Satan began to seed doubt in their minds. Did God really say that? You won't surely die. And then to set temptation before them. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. And so they ate of the fruit. And in doing so, they not only yielded their God-given authority to Satan, but they condemned all that would come after them to live lives tainted by sin, to live lives in bodies that would decay and eventually die, and to live lives that would be full of hard work. Now, of course, God could have given up on humanity at that point in time, but he didn't. Even in the immediate aftermath 
of that sin, we hear his voice calling out, seeking the humans he had created there in the garden. And then over the thousands of years to follow, we see God making promises to his people. We see him raising up leaders to lead the people. We see him taking them out of slavery in Egypt and into a land that he had promised to give them. We see him establish them as his own people, send prophets to speak to them on his behalf, and he provided them with priests and a system of sacrifice to atone for their ongoing sin. Now, the history books in the Bible will trace the trajectory of human beings with respect to sin, and it kind of goes like this, up and down, up and down. For a time, a, a good king will be appointed and he will lead the people um, back to the Lord. They'll destroy all their idols and their places of false worship. And for a time, they'll come back to the Lord. But eventually, they return to their evil ways. Why is that? Why do we see this constant cycle of up and down throughout the Old Testament? It is because the curse of Adam has become part of their DNA. They have become corrupted and no amount of animal sacrifice could restore them to the perfect state that they had once been in. So God sent a second Adam. Actually, he would be the last Adam because no other Adam would be needed after this one. Like the first Adam, he bore the very image of God, only more so because this last Adam was the beloved second person of the Holy Trinity. Like the first Adam, he was given authority by God, only more so because his authority extended to the heavens and the earth. Like the first Adam, he would be tempted by Satan, but where the first Adam would succumb to that temptation, the second Adam never would. At the beginning of his ministry, we read of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Three times Satan comes after him, tempting him to take what would seem to be the easy option. He's there fasting for 40 days, no food, no water. And Satan tells him, turn, turn these stones into bread. You don't need to be hungry. Well, you could be instantly famous. Throw yourself off the highest point of the temple and the angels will lift you up. Now, those aren't the words that are in the Bible, but that's what the intention was. You don't need to go through all that suffering and the cross and all of that stuff. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And on each occasion, we know that Jesus re resisted the devil with scripture. 
And we read at the end of that account, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, throughout his ministry, the devil repeatedly tempts Jesus. But that opportune time would come towards the end of his ministry as he gets closer and closer to the cross. We have read together that there in the garden, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. The full weight of what is happening is becoming very real to him. And he says to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Luke in his gospel describes Jesus as being anguished at that time. And he gives us a bit more of an insight into what is going on. He explains that Jesus here is sweating and the sweat that is pouring out of him is red with blood. So whatever emotionally is going on inside his body, those capillaries are bursting and they're leaking out blood and it's coming out of him in his sweat. Now, nighttime temperatures for that time of the year in that part of the world would have been expected to have been around 10 to 15 degrees Celsius. For me, that's a bit on the chilly side. It's certainly not sweaty temperature. Jesus is not sweating here because he's hot. He is sweating because he is in anguish and that sweat is appearing on his skin like drops of blood. He knew that persecution and crucifixion lay ahead for him. And so you might say, well, that's completely understandable that someone would be in anguish at the thought of that ahead of them. He knew the floggings that he would endure. He knew that he would be mocked. He knew that nails would be put through his hands. But so did many other human beings. Countless Christian martyrs throughout history have gone to their deaths and they have been excruciating deaths in many cases and they've gone joyfully. They've gone expectantly and they've even gone singing hymns or joking with their executioners. St Lawrence was one of the seven deacons in Rome in the third century AD. He was sent by Emperor Valerian to be burned alive on a grill. And partway through this process, he is said to have turned to his executioners and said, you can turn me over now, I'm done on this side. Saints Perpetua and Felicity were brought into the Colosseum to be mauled to death by wild animals there for their faith. They stood in the center of that arena facing the wild animals singing a psalm. Thousands of years later, nuns executed during the Spanish Civil War by Republic and Communist forces faced their deaths calmly singing hymns together. 
above the door of Westminster Abbey, uh, the church where soon, I believe, King Charles will be coronated, you will find 10 statues to modern Christian martyrs. They are victims of Nazism, communism, and religious prejudice during the 20th century. They include Martin Luther King Jr., Oscar Romero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and some lesser known names from Russia, Uganda, China, Poland, Pakistan, Papua New Guinea, and South Africa. The persecution continues to this day. Brave Christian men, women, and children calmly facing death rather than deny their faith. I'm going to pick one example from this book. This is, this is a book that all Christians should read. It's called Jesus Freaks, and it's basically a book of the modern Christian martyrs. And some of the stories in there are harrowing, but also greatly inspiring. North Korea in the 1950s. In the process of constructing a new road, uh, the workers discover Pastor Kim and his flock of 27 who have been living in tunnels that they have dug by hand beneath the area where this new road is going through. They're brought out before a crowd of 30,000 in the village of Goksan for a public trial and execution. And they're told that they must deny Christ or die. But none of them will. So four of the children from the group are seized and ropes are put around their necks, preparing for them to be hung. Again, the parents are commanded to deny their faith or die. None of them does. Instead, they calmly tell their children, we will see you soon in heaven. And the children die quietly. The rest of that group is forced to lie in a straight line on the ground. A steamroller is brought out and the engine is revved in front of them. And again, they're given one final chance to deny Christ or die. No one does. And so the steamroller moves forward and the sound of human bones crunching under that steamroller mingles with the sounds of their singing. As they sung together one final time on earth, a song that they had sung many times before. It was this song. They sung, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Thee alone I seek, more love to thee. Let sorrow do its work, more love to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise, more love, O Christ, to thee. It makes some of the things that we whinge about seem very insignificant, doesn't it? I'm telling you this because countless Christians have faced horrendous deaths 
and many of them have done it joyfully and even with singing. The prospect of death was not the cause of Jesus being troubled and overwhelmed to the point of death. He isn't sweating because he fears torture or is terrified about the type of death that he is about to experience. Many mere mortals have done the same. But only one man would bear the full weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. We're given a clue if we eavesdrop into the prayer that he prayed in that garden. Matthew 26, 39. My father, he prays, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now that cup that Jesus refers to is an Old Testament metaphor for the wrath of God against those who had consistently sinned against him. There's a few examples up there of scriptures where it is used in that way in the Old Testament. I'll read just one of them. Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. So I put it to you that in spite of all the many Easter's that you have had to watch video clips of floggings and beatings and the humiliation that Jesus had to endure at the cross, none of that was his primary concern. Jesus knew what God thinks about sin. Jesus knew how God would judge sin and here at this point in the garden he is well aware that he is now the bearer of all that sin, past, present and future. He is well aware that he will be separated from the Father when judged as sin and that he will bear the wrath of God on our behalf. Now, this is beyond, I think, our ability to understand. But maybe we are given a little visual clue in the location. The word Gethsemane does not mean olive grove. It means oil press. And it suggests that somewhere in that garden there was located an oil press for crushing the olives to produce the purified olive oil. And it provides us with something of a visual image of Jesus crushed by the weight of the wrath of God bearing down upon him in order to restore or to purify, if you like, the human race. That's a picture of a, an ancient oil press. So two men in two very different gardens, two men with very different responses to temptation. One succumbed and brought the curse of sin and death upon humanity. The other, the true and better Adam, cried out to God there 
in Gethsemane as he was crushed. Luke's gospel tells us that God sent an angel to strengthen him in his time of need. And there he committed himself to doing the Father's will and ultimately he would endure and he would prevail. And we are the beneficiaries of his suffering because through it the grace of God has been extended to us. We have been made righteous in Christ. Our authority that was yielded to Satan at Eden has been restored and we have received eternal life. As the Apostle Paul sees it, there are two types of people in this world, those who are of the earth and those who are of heaven. The first Adam was a living being. He represents the earthly nature. And through him we experience sin and we experience physical death. Those who are of the world are ruled by that earthly nature. But the last Adam... He's a life-giving spirit. And those who are of his line, who accept his call on their lives, inherit his spiritual nature. They're transformed from merely being living beings under Adam to spiritual beings under the last Adam, Jesus Christ. They become like him and their spirits will live forever even though their physical bodies will experience decay and eventual death. The passage up there on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49, it's up there, it's from the message version, and I think the last sentence aptly sums it up. In the same way that we've worked from our earthly origins, let us embrace our heavenly ends. We don't have to live under the curse of Adam anymore because God sent another Adam, a true and a better Adam. Where the first Adam failed, bringing sin and death upon us, the second Adam broke that curse and brought new life. That is the message of salvation. The story of two Adams. Let's give thanks to God. Thank you, Father, that you did not leave us with only one Adam. Thank you for restoring us. Thank you for Jesus, who endured beyond what is possible for us even to imagine, to redeem us. We honour And we praise you for all that you have done. Amen.